Welcome to another episode of The Grace and Peace of God, Love Wins. Today, we're going to be talking specifically about peace. Peace, you know, it's that precious commodity. And if there's one precious commodity commodity that exists in our earthly life, here's what it is not. It's not gold or silver or rubies nor riches. So what is this precious commodity I'm referring to? It is the peace of God. Psalm chapter 120 verse 7 shares with us, As for me, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's easy for people to make fun of beauty contestants who add into their speeches that they all desire world peace. Yet imagine for a moment what that really would look like if that happened. Peace God's way isn't popular. There are many people who dig their heels in, preferring to fight the fight until the end, so to speak. You know, it's the principle, justice over mercy must prevail. And yet scripture teaches us differently. Scripture teaches mercy is given to the merciful. Jesus' most remembered sermon came from the Sermon on the Mount, and this was a listing of eight blessings. Specifically, it was in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 7, where we, we learn God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And further down in verse 9, God says, blessed are those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. The Beatitudes teach us how to be blessed by God. It's a deeper state of being than just experiencing happiness. Happiness is always circumstantial, but joy is the underlying peace no matter what circumstances come our way. Being blessed in God's kingdom means we're joyful and we're hopeful. We may not sit around in laughter experiencing earthly prosperity, but we will experience a richer happiness, the only kind that God can provide. And there is no doubt after living my way and then learning to live God's way that the latter differs from what the world teaches us. In the world, there will be takers. In the kingdom, there are only givers. Here, Jesus is referring to all areas of life, our finances, our time, our ideas, our help, our mercy, and the list goes on and on. In the world, there are haters and not appreciators of all that is good, but God teaches us to love one another. Actually, he commands it. We've all heard it said, love is an action, a verb. It's something that we do. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, it has this to say, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable and keeps no record of when it's been wronged. It's never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It always is hopeful and endures through every circumstance. The love is the greatest chapter concludes with this thought in verse 13. There are three things that will endure faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, the love God is expressing here is actionable as stated above. It's not a passive love. We can tell another person, 
I love you, but how will they know to trust us? It's only when we place action behind our words that trust is built. And the same is true with Jesus. In the book of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34, he said, Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. As he hung on the cross completely sinless, two criminals hanged beside him. One asked to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And the thick veil hanging in the temple was torn apart from the top to the bottom, symbolizing no more separation for man from God. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with these words, he breathed his last. This is the ultimate expression of what agape love looks like when placed into action. Agape here meaning unconditional love, self-sacrificing. This tops the list of attributes for God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we're reminded of anyone who does not love God. They don't know God, for God is love. And John admonishes us and figuratively takes us to the woodshed, telling us to stop just saying that we love each other. Stop pontificating love with mere lip service. Rather, let's be intentional and dedicated to really showing that we love each other. Then and only then can we be confident standing before God and being in His presence. Even if our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything as He is sovereign. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 reinforces this by saying, The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I know, I the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what actions they deserve. Our hearts are inclined for sin from the moment we're born. But because we serve a merciful God, He's made a way for us to not only be forgiven, but to turn away from sin, changing direction in our lives. We need to learn what it means to help when another's being abused. For example, do you find yourself telling others, I'll pray for you, and yet possibly you keep your word, and maybe you don't. We've all been there. None of us are perfect. Most of the time, our intentions are good, but then life gets in the way. So a better way is to ask how we may bless the person today and get specific feedback on their needs that we can use in the moment, and then we can turn and pray to God for them. When we come to the end of ourselves and recognize the enormous need we have in our hearts for Jesus, then and only then will God truly bless us and give us the kingdom of heaven. Personally, I'm immensely thankful that God reads hearts. He knows the truth. What an awesome superpower that would be if man could look into the hearts of others. I think once beyond the battle scars of this world, we would see tremendous compassion rather than the scar tissue that acts as the facade. Another beatitude says God blesses those that are gentle and lowly, for the whole earth will belong to them. When we give ourselves to serve others, one day we will receive everything God has in store for us. In my book, The Grace and Peace of God, Love Wins, we learn descriptors for both Moses and Jesus are listed in the Bible as both being meek. It's important to note that meekness is not weakness. 
It's quite the opposite. It's an acceptance of one's modest position before God. And we learn from the Beatitudes that kingdom values are eternal and they contrast worldly temporal values. People who are pharisaical operating from a position of superficial faith are compared with real faith that Christ demands from his believers. The Sermon on the Mount encompasses Jesus' teaching on the Beatitudes. We learn that we must embrace all or none of these eight blessings to be followers of Jesus. It's not a buffet where we can pick and choose what aligns with us in giving us comfort. These are words of truth spoken directly from Jesus. And just because we may not agree doesn't make his word any less true. We learn that following Jesus is no longer a choice. It's a necessity for navigating this life and getting through it with an outcome of eternal life to come. We've learned that the world and the heavenly kingdom operate differently. Wealth, power, authority are not important in the kingdom of heaven. As believers, we seek out God's blessings and promises rather than copying selfish, pride, and lust for power. We seek humility and self-sacrifice. For example, every morning I spend my first one and a half hours in the Word of God. I put together audio messages from my family to encourage and uplift them. These strengthen my faith and it helps to strengthen theirs as well. This is a conscious choice that I make for contribution to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus chose love, will you? And friends, today, if you want to become a child of God and spend eternity in heaven, not somewhere else, then I invite you to pray this prayer of invitation to Jesus with me. Lord Jesus, I repent and turn away from my sins. Come into and take up residence within my heart. I believe your shed blood was for all who would believe that you took on the sin of humanity at the cross at Calvary. Amen. And friends, if you prayed that prayer of salvation, I believe you were saved and born again spiritually. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you. Now, let me be the first to congratulate you on the most important decision you've ever made. Now, get into a Bible-based church and surround yourself with like-minded Christians who will strengthen your new commitment to the Lord. And as you go out into the world, remember the priestly benediction and blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. This is a prayer that encompasses six of God's blessings for his children. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor and give you his peace. Amen. And expounding on the relevance of this benediction for your life, it's called the priestly blessing, and that comes from Moses' brother Aaron. Moses was instructed by the Lord to tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with that special blessing. As a matter of fact, in Numbers 6.27, this is how Aaron and his sons will designate the Israelites as my people, and I myself will bless them, says the Lord. Now, a blessing was one way of asking for God's divine favor to rest upon others. The ancient blessing in these verses helps us to understand what a blessing is supposed to do. Its five parts conveyed hope that God would bless and protect them, smile on them, meaning to be pleased, pleased. 
Be gracious or merciful and compassionate. Show his favor toward them would be to give his approval or his righteousness and give them peace. When you ask God to bless others or yourself, you're asking him to do these five things. The blessing you offer will not only help the one receiving it, it will also demonstrate love, encourage others, and provide a model of caring for others. So who was Aaron then? We find him in Egypt and in the wilderness of uh, Sinai. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. He was the first high priest of God in Israel. He was also Moses' brother and second in command. They had a sister named Miriam and Aaron had four sons. Now, Aaron's strengths was that he was an effective communicator and also served as Moses' mouthpiece, but he did have some weaknesses. He had a very pliable personality where he gave in to people's demands, building a golden calf that the people turned to idol worship. He also joined Moses in disobeying God's orders about the water-giving rock, and yet another time he joined his sister in complaining against Moses. Lessons from Aaron's life, God gives individuals special abilities which he weaves together for his uses. And the very skills that make a good team player sometimes make for a poor leader, which is what I think we saw here. Now, taking a look at Moses, Moses got himself into trouble frequently. One could make a case that he was good at conflict resolution. Remember back to when we said that love is action? Well, for Moses, reaction was more his speed and common action. He lived in Egypt, also Midian, and the wilderness of Sinai. And about each of those, those uh, Egypt for 40 years, Midian for 40 years, and then the wilderness of Sinai for about 40 years. He was a prince, a shepherd, and a leader of the Israelites. And if there was something needing to be righted, he was on it. For example, the burning bush showed us the character of Moses. He saw the bush was burning and became curious, being drawn to it. He also defended a Hebrew slave without thinking twice, a decision that put his destiny off by about 40 years. That was his Midian period that he escaped to. God is patient with us. The Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. When we ask for help, he steps in, guides, and directs us. So as Moses matured, his impulsive reactions turned to reacting correctly. God taught Moses by placing him into a leadership position, leading two million people through the wilderness. He was the buffer between God and the people. And oftentimes, he would have to balance the people's murmuring and complaining against the unjustified attacks of his character. We all have instincts to react from, but if we want to respond correctly, we need to align ourselves with God and become obedient to his ways. Then when we encounter stressful, triggering situations, we'll respond naturally in the ways of God. Many years ago, the phrase WWJD was popular. It stood for what would Jesus do? When we know the word of God, we can answer and apply this to every challenge in our life. God took the person of Moses and molded and shaped him until he was usable for kingdom purposes. He had his strengths and abilities developed and drawn out of him. This is what he does with you and with also with me. 
God didn't give him anything that he didn't already possess. This simply came from being obedient to God rather than to people. So let's ask today how to use your abilities and strengths to do the will of God. Moses' strengths included he was Egyptian educated. He had wilderness training. He set the exodus in motion. He was a prophet and lawgiver, recorder of the Ten Commandments. He was author of the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, talk meaning book, so Pentateuch, or the Torah meaning teachings and instruction. Now Moses did have weaknesses too, like we all do. His disobedience to God one time caused him to fail to enter the promised land. God didn't reject Moses, but he didn't allow entrance into the promised land. Although he possessed personal greatness, this did not substitute the payment of consequences. Moses didn't always recognize and use the talents of others. Ask God to help you to be aware of others' dormant talents that you can help bring out of them. Be an encourager. And so some lessons from Moses' life is that God prepares us and then puts us into service for his use. God's timetable is life-sized. God's greatest work comes through people who've experienced frailty and adversity. And Moses' key verse comes from the faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be treated as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. When we place this temporal life under the microscope of eternity, we too can place our faith into action. I hope this message has served you well. If you want to get future episodes, make sure to like and subscribe on Spotify and they'll be sent directly to you. Thank you. God bless you and amen.